Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a digital content creator, patient advocate, and co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work, which is on a mission to get you better supported whilst going through all this at work. And I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. In this new series of the Fertility Podcast, we're going behind the scenes of IVF. Do listen to the end of every episode because we want to hear from you. Let's get stuck in. This series of The Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much needed innovation to IVF labs. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W.org. So welcome to this episode of the Fertility Podcast. And as you just heard, we've been working with Tomorrow Life Sciences. And I'm going to just get stuck in to this episode because what we want to do is take you on a bit of a journey into what the future looks like in terms of how your embryos are stored. And tomorrow, as well as sponsoring this podcast, featuring in this episode, because I was invited to go to London to have a look at their amazing futuristic technology that is starting to be rolled out in clinics in the UK. It's already in a number of clinics in America. And so what you're going to hear now, something a little bit different, is me having a demo of the Tomorrow Cryo Storage Facility with Cynthia Hudson, who is Vice President at Tomorrow. She's also an embryologist, so she explains all about how this will help embryologists when they are freezing our precious embryos in the lab. Uh, Kate wasn't there with me, hence it just being me in the chat, but have a listen, and then Kate will be joining me later because you're also going to be hearing in this conversation from Elizabeth Carr, who was the US's first IVF baby and also now works for Tomorrow. Really interesting hearing about how her life has gone kind of full cycle from how she came into this world to what she's now doing in her every day. But we hope you find it interesting. I hope it gives you food for thought. Let us know at the end. Here's Cynthia. Well, welcome to tomorrow. Um, London office that I get to visit on a fairly regular basis, which is nice. Please step this way. So this is our newest robotic platform. The brains of this company is the software. The software is the, the one that runs everything. So what we've done here at Tomorrow is to build a platform for the effective tracking and tracing of frozen eggs and embryos in the clinical IVF laboratory. So we have a couple of different pieces to this puzzle. Um, we have, you know, our software platform is basically the, the neural network, the brains that connects everything. So we have robotic storage systems that the robot controls. We have two versions, one larger capacity and one smaller capacity. That software system connects to the clinic's electronic medical record system so that the embryologists don't have to enter the same data twice. So we've connected those backend databases so that the embryologists have an easier time doing their work. We have a 24-hour monitoring network operation center located in the United States. And we have people that are watching the system 24 hours a day because there's nothing more important to us than the safety and security of your frozen eggs totally. and embryos. And this looks really sci-fi. So if a patient's seen a, a dewer, which is kind of looks like a milk urn, doesn't it? And it's quite 
kind of archaic. I hadn't realised that that's one piece of the process of IVF that hasn't changed in over it, 40 since years. It hasn't changed it hasn't since changed full stop. at all, actually. You know, there's been a lot of advancement in IVF. We've got new and better medications to stimulate the women's ovaries. Um, we've got different medications so that they don't hyperstimulate and end up in the hospital. We have different ways of culturing embryos. We have different ways of fertilizing eggs. We have different ways of testing embryos. We've done a lot of different things, all in the aid of trying to shorten the time to pregnancy. Uh, but one of the areas that has not received any sort of advancement or technological innovation is cryo storage. And so this company was the first to really do that um, and employ a system where it's now you have a tool um, to use for managing this, this burgeoning inventory. Um, I've termed this uh, that IVF clinics have become accidental biorepositories. So that is not their core competency. It is not what they're there to do. But these embryologists now have to manage and care for hundreds and thousands of patients' frozen tissues that they never were before. So what you're essentially saying is that embryos could be put somewhere else to deal with the issue of space? Yes, so one of the things that we're building is a way for the clinic to have the tissues that are not actively being used to send them off-site to our biorepository, where we are employing a system of this effective track and trace so that all specimens are checked into the clinic, they're then checked into the biorepository, and the clinic has 100% visibility into their entire collection. We've done this using um, RFID technology, radio frequency ID, which is a way of making sure that these tissues are electronically checked into and out of their storage. So we're using RFID as a tool to help us track and trace these tissues. Um, so if, if I'm, as a, as a patient, say I've been through treatment and I've had success and I've got my frozen embryos, which is, there's so many kind of conversations and questions that patients have about their, their precious frozen embryos. And what I'm hearing is that they, they might be moved and I'm worried about that movement because it's the most precious thing to me. What kind of assurance is there about that movement? What we've been lacking, you know, in this area is that chain of custody, right? So how do we know that the specimen went from the laboratory into the cryo storage in the first place? You know, this is now handwritten, it's documented. Um, you know, how do we know that those tissues got put into a transport container? How do we know when that got picked up? How do we know what the temperature is? How do we know that it got there? You know, so what we're doing is um, using technology. It's 2022. We should be using technology to effectively track and trace all of these tissues throughout their journey so that we can ensure that they are kept at the same temperature and that they are getting where they're supposed to. You know, we, we know where I can locate my phone from 14 miles away that I left in a restaurant you know, and, and we can't figure out where our eggs and embryos are, you know, this is not an acceptable way to do it anymore. So let's, we're using technology to make sure that we know where these things are. So do you want to talk me through it? Yeah, so, you know, our, our software system is, um, like I said, that we, that we do connect to the clinic's electronic medical record system. Um, is cloud-based. So every user has a, a login. This starts the audit trail. So we know who does what and when. And we know everything about every specimen that enters the system. So we now have a complete um, record of what's going on. This is every tissue that is supposed to go into storage or come out of storage. So we can receive tissues from other clinics, we can freeze the tissues ourselves, or we can you know, take them out for use for the patient for frozen embryo transfer, or we can take them out to transfer them to another clinic. So every time something needs to go in or out is controlled through this 
is this different to what currently is used? Like, because obviously we're we're always keen to understand about human error and where we right. can overcome human error and the cloud cloud base, especially with, for example, what's gone on in U- in Ukraine and the clinics and the, the speed of having to move and yeah. right. the worries about patient records and stuff. Right. So um, the advantage of having it in the cloud is that it's we have the opportunity to have multiple redundant backups of that database. Um, we also have the ability to have our inventory updated in real time. Because we're checking the specimens into and out, the, the clinic's inventory is accurate to the, to the second. This is different than what clinics are using today. So they may have an electronic medical record system for capturing the, the medical history, the data, you know, even the embryology workflow, but there's no system that actually manages and, and tracks the cryo storage. So what I'll do here is I'll pretend I'm freezing some embryos and okay. we can just walk through the software and, okay. and see how it works. So we've designed this to be as intuitive as possible. What would you like to do? Freeze. So it says freeze, thaw, import, export. Okay. Yeah. Embryo. We'll freeze an embryo. Yep, freeze an embryo. We can search for a patient name by their ID number yep. or by their last name. I have some test patients over here. This is uh, useful for the clinics because they typically prepare uh, paperwork and schedule in advance for doing like embryo thaws. Right. So I know I have these five patients to thaw tomorrow. I can I can enter the data and pr- have it ready to go when I walk in the door. We're going to freeze one embryo. So from a paperwork point of view, if you're in a clinic, this is going to speed things up. This is going to make your embryologist's life easier. It's going to make their life a lot easier um, because now they don't have to write it down. They can directly enter it. Um, And frankly, these data with the clinical EMR would already be pulled in. So the demonstration I I can do today is is as as this operating as a standalone system. Um, if I were in the clinic, I would have these data pulled in so that I wouldn't, that it would already be here. Right. But what our system does is we assign a unique ID to the cryo device that the tissue is going to be frozen on. We tie that unique ID to a, a uniquely identified container that contains an RFID chip. And then this whole container gets checked into and out of storage. And you, it looks like you're holding like a fountain pen, like a thick pen. Yeah, so this is a, uh, we call this a cryo beacon. This is a container for cryo devices. It holds up to eight cryo devices. This is fairly standard form factor that is used to hold cryo devices in the clinic now. What we've done is we've made a container that has a cap so that the devices can't fall out. We've put an RFID chip on so that we can um, identify this um, hands-free. We've redundantly labeled this container with a linear barcode and an alphanumeric iReadable, and we allow for the safe transport of the crowd devices with this, which is called an ingress hole, so that it allows liquid nitrogen to come in. So when I want to pick this up and move it somewhere else, the specimens are submerged all the time. I mean, it just feels like I'm in a sci-fi movie. It's not, and I think from a patient point of view, to get that level of just understanding of how things are are done and seen. What I'm doing here is I'm telling the system how many cryo devices I need yeah. for the system to uniquely identify. I'm indicating the uh, infectious screening status of the patient. There are rules governing how you can store tissues based on the patient's um, status. So, for instance, if a patient has HIV, those tissues should be handled differently than a patient that doesn't have HIV or hepatitis C. So we're forcing compliance for labeling by making this a required field. 
in our system. These data would be pulled in already, so this is now I have a unique ID for the cryo device. There's one embryo on it. It is a day five embryo. This is embryo number three, and it's a grade of 4AA. Each clinic is going to have a different slightly different grading system, yeah. slightly different numbering system. Yeah. Which causes and patients to enter rabbit holes on Google. To enter rabbit holes on Google. Yeah. I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're looking at the rate of development, the stage of development, and for utter simplicity, how pretty it looks. Yeah. We have other tools of checking embryos to see whether or not we think they're going to make a baby. We can biopsy these embryos and check to see if they have the correct number of chromosomes. We can check embryos to see if they carry um, disease-causing mutations like sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. We have different tools of evaluating things, but the most common tool that we use is our eyeballs and by looking at them. Print labels. So that's the most old-fashioned part that you're actually printing. You're printing a label that has to be has yep. to be that functionality, it has yep. to have a label ultimately. The cryo devices currently come blank and so they have to be identified somehow. Yeah. We are in development with a couple of different companies to put an RFID chip in the cryo device itself so that we can, like our cryo beacon, we can assign that unique ID to a patient rather than have system assign a unique ID on a label. Right, so that's the scanning of the label. Yeah. We're scanning the label to make sure that the barcode printed correctly and that I am, in fact, working with the patient that I am working on. So what I would do at this point is label. Um, I would have two cryo devices here. I would label them. I would put them in here. I'm going to print this. This is my freeze order. We don't have to print this, but this is a, this is a visual... Um, hard copy record of everything that I just entered. Okay. So it's not required to print this, but people like to. We made this really nice paper. Um, <laughs> and if you think it looks like a if you think it looks like a boarding pass, that's intentional. Okay. Um, the company founders had a bit of an obsession with JetBlue. Um, so there's a lot of aviation themes in uh, the developing software. What are we hearing? Uh, so what we're hearing is the uh, transporter that we use to carry the, the prow beacons and the specimens around the laboratory, we're filling it with liquid nitrogen. Okay. So at this stage in the process, I would take my uniquely identified cryo devices and cryo beacon. I would go over to the, the hood, which is a workbench in the IVF laboratory. I would go get the embryos that I want to freeze, take them out of the incubator, bring them to the bench, and then I would go through the process of freezing those embryos, and then I would place them into liquid nitrogen. Okay. So my colleague over here is preparing the bath of liquid nitrogen for them to go into. A quick bit on freezing, because cells are mostly made of water, um, and water forms ice crystals when we freeze, if we, if we don't treat these cells before we, we, we lower the temperature, we have the danger of forming ice crystals in the cells, and that can cause the cells to lyse. And degenerate. So now we're at the process where I'm, you know, I have to make a decision. Am I going to transfer this embryo back to the woman's uterus? Am I going to freeze this embryo? Am I going to biopsy it? At this point, I have to make a disposition decision. So in this case, we're going to freeze those embryos. But before I freeze the embryos, I have to remove the water from the cells. And so we take them through a process um, whereby we dehydrate the cells, we remove the water, and we replace it with a cryoprotectant that is 
a lot less likely to cause ice crystals when we drop the temperature. As a patient, you hear about how the, the, the freezing process has improved. Is that yes. one of the improvements, that process? Absolutely. So we used to do a freezing protocol that um, was quite long, two, maybe two and a half hours long, to drop the temperature from 37 degrees Celsius down to minus 196. In the last 10 to 15 years, we've developed and, I would say, perfected a process of cooling these very rapidly, and this is called vitrification. And so we're now taking the temperature from 37 degrees Celsius to minus 196 in under a second. So by doing this, um, we our survival, the, the number of cells that survive this process is a lot higher than using the other method. So now we have an effective tool for managing, um, for managing our patients better. Um, not every patient is a good candidate to get embryos transferred back into their uterus during that stimulation cycle. Yeah. There's nothing physiologically normal about a 3,000 estradiol. So we don't always want to put embryos back into that potentially compromised environment. We want to make sure that every time you put an embryo back, it has the best chance of implanting. Um, so and I think that's really interesting for a patient to hear because there is that, is, is a frozen transfer better than a, a fresh? And there's still lots of kind of conversation about that. So it, it can having be. It exp- having it explained like that is really useful. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, you know, again, we want to, we've got, we've got an embryo and we've got a uterus and they both need to be in prime condition. And if one of them is not in prime condition, we probably don't want to put that embryo back. Um, and this also um, allowed us to freeze eggs. So now, you know, we're giving women many more options about their, their life journey. You know, they don't necessarily have to panic about waiting, you know, waiting to find the right partner. They can choose to freeze eggs now and then take their time to find, you know, their chosen life partner. Or maybe not. Maybe yeah. they choose to to be single motherhood. Yeah. Uh, maybe they choose to use donor sperm. Maybe they choose to not ever be a parent. But yeah. now they have the option that is available to them at a very high success rate. This is where it gets really sci-fi with the, uh, yeah. the frozen yeah, nitrogen being passed around. This container, this transporter, is, uh, we call it a cryotransporter. We've now devised something purpose-built to carry frozen specimens around the laboratory. Previously, we walked around with buckets of made of styrofoam and take these tissues from the workbench to the cryo storage area. Sometimes we put those styrofoam buckets on a cart, but we've never really had a purpose-built tool for transporting these tissues safely around the laboratory. So we built one that has a lid and that has a see-through lid so that we never lose line of sight to our specimens. So let's pretend I just froze these embryos, and now I'm going to be walking over to my cryo-robot. And so as an embryologist, have you literally sat and written the ideal process down, looking at the the pitfalls of what used to be and what would make it ideal along the way? Absolutely. I mean, so what we did was we took the, the existing workflow and we looked at all the ways that we could take risk out of that workflow. So we now have a software system that assigns a position in the robot based on the infectious screen status. So now I don't have to rely on me walking over to the cryo room, figuring out where there's space for it, and then having someone next to me check to make sure that I put it in the right spot, that I put it in the right tank based on its infectious screening status, and that I wrote the location down correctly. 
we've taken all of that risk completely out of the process. So there's, we've got we've got glasses and gloves. I've got glasses and I've got gloves because I'm handling liquid nitrogen, which is at a temperature of minus 196 degrees Celsius. I'll just, I'll just stand back. Oh, I won't throw it at you. <laughs> um, so this is our um, our newest version of our cryo robot. This, the one back here is the original version. This is currently live in commercial use in the United States. We are about to deploy this one into commercial use a little bit later this year. We are registered as a medical device in the EU, and we've gotten CE mark approval for these. And so the level of uh, validation and verification of all of our processes and our company and our standard operating procedures and all of our quality control is, is extraordinarily rigorous, and it allows us to give that level of comfort and safety to the embryologist saying we've done all of these things to make sure that we are producing the highest quality medical device that we can. Going to sign in to the cryo robot, we have deployed an iris scanner. So it's just like clear for your cryo storage. Again, also being captured in our audit trail so I know who did what and when. I mean, I do feel like I'm in a movie. Once a day, we have dual factor authentication and once a day you have to put in your password. I usually follow the directions. It says, ready to load, open the drawer. This works a little bit like an ATM. I'm going to place my crowd transporter into the system. I'm going to open the lid and I'm going to put my temperature probe in front of the transporter. We have special equipment inside this robot that will keep this transporter full of liquid nitrogen so that the specimens are kept safe at all times. I am wearing my personal protective equipment. I have opened the lid and I have removed my coffee cup so it is safe to close the drawer without obstruction. And now I'm going to close the door. Underneath that transporter in the drawer is an RFID reader. So what the system is going to do is going to scan the drawer and Tell me what's in the drawer. So this is the patient, the freeze that I just did. So as part of my specimen record and history, I'm going to continue working with the screen. I am putting the specimen away, but my colleague might have actually frozen the specimen. And I'm asking the users to enter who did the freeze. So then I know, I know who did it and I know who put it away. I have said that I'm going to freeze embryo number three and embryo number five. One of the things that we built into our system is we've given the ability for the embryologist to change their mind. So if they looked at the embryos in the morning and they decided they were gonna freeze embryo number three and embryo number five, they prepared their paperwork, maybe they went to have lunch, although most embryologists don't get to have lunch because they're working too hard. But they come back in the afternoon and they pull out the dish and they say, you know what, I think embryo number five needs another day of culture before I wanna freeze it. So we've built a way for the users to tell us exactly what they did and to make sure that they were putting in the right inventory. I'm gonna say I froze both of those embryos. I'm gonna save that. I'm now writing all of those data back to the database, which is gonna get in that specimen history and audit trail. It's giving me a little green check mark. And now I can hit start. What I'm gonna do is open the door and talk you through how it's doing. So this is the storage tank. This is where all the specimens uh, end up. This is the robotic arm that is going to pick up the selected cryo beacon containing the specimens. The system knows which one to pick up based on the position in the drawer. 
because it's reading the RFID chip. We've built in several modes of redundancy in that every cryo beacon that goes into the system and every cryo beacon that comes out has its RFID chip read twice. So the automation is going to pick up that cryo beacon from the transporter. It's going to pick it up and then it's going to check it and say, did I pick up the one I wanted? Um, so we have redundancies in every aspect. We have backup redundant solenoids on every filling mechanism in this robotic unit. We have temperature sensors at several different levels inside. So here it has picked up the cryo beacon. It's now reading the chip again. This thing is going to slide open and it's going to place the cryo beacon into the assigned position in the tank. I could look up in the system exactly what location that is, but I really don't need to know. All I need to do is when I'm ready to when I'm ready to get it, I just tell the system that I want it. So now I don't have to write it down, say it was in, you know, row four you know, whatever whatever the location is, we don't have to actually record that because the system's doing it for us. Um, the arm has placed it, it's going to withdraw from the tank, the top will slide over, and... So in terms of what a clinic currently has, and the equivalent that it could store in here, what kind of numbers are we talking? Uh, this is a much more efficient um, storage paradigm. It's almost like going from a, from a ranch to a high-rise. Okay. So instead of you know more uh, horizontal storage, we can, we can stack it a little bit vertically. And we can do that... Um, without causing any danger to the embryologist because we're using robotics to place to pick and place the specimens. Um, one, of the, one of the issues with um, handling a large cryo storage inventory in a, in a standard clinic is the fact that there are, um, there, you have to manually fill those tanks. You have to make sure that the liquid nitrogen is at the correct level in those tanks. It's a quite laborious and extensive process. There are clinics that have you know, over 100 of these particular doers that the specimens are stored in. Each one of them has to be monitored. Each one of them has to be filled and checked on a, on a, on a very regular basis. So we've used technology now to do this for us. The system automatically fills um, the tank to make sure that it's topped off. Uh, it's being monitored on several different levels. We monitor the temperature inside the tank. We monitor the temperature outside the tank. I'm monitoring the environment of this robotic unit. We have a dehumidifier to keep, you know, the environment um, at a, a lower RH. We have a, a battery. Um, we have a UPS so that in case there's any interruption in power, there's no interruption in the use of the robotic system. Uh, we always recommend that the clinics have these hooked up to their a backup generator. Um, so it's pretty fail-safe. It's pretty fail-safe. But the hold time for this tank is about three weeks, meaning that if there was some interruption in the liquid nitrogen supply, the tank can safely hold the temperature for three weeks. Okay. Wow, hey, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And so now my specimens are stored, and, uh, and done. my order is done. Job done. Yeah. Part of our technology platform is our what we've termed Overwatch. So we have a network operations center in the United States that is monitoring this and every system we have in the field 24 hours a day because there's nothing more important to our company than the safety and security of these frozen tissues. So we have people on standby, on call 24 hours a day watching this. Should stop it, you see. So it's peace of mind ultimately as a patient that this looking after your precious 
cargo yeah. is as error-proof as it can be. We're taking a lot of risk out of the process. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that... Um, so our company founders, who have worked together for... started and sold companies for 20 years, nothing in their history would have ever indicated they had medical or healthcare or any of that background. We're having a conversation with a, a young woman who was describing her journey of freezing her eggs, and these naturally curious humans asked her at one point where they were, and she didn't really give a satisfactory answer, um, and they just found that to be um, quite shocking, and started digging into it and looking at it, and that basically formed the company. Because so, I think there's an element where you're such rabbit in the headlights, you wouldn't even think you had permission to ask about that part of it. You just go and do what you're told. It's yeah, part it's, of the process. it's sort of here's behind the curtain, yeah, right? Exactly. You know, just exactly. don't worry. We'll just we'll just take care of everything for you. And many patients, you know, are, are fine with that. But there's a lot of, I would say, a growing number of patients that are asking questions and they really want to know, what are you doing to help me in this journey of mine? You know, and how are you doing it? And I think those are fair questions to ask. Um, especially, I think, now when more and more people, especially in the UK, are having to self-fund. I know, obviously, in the US there's, there's healthcare benefits, but we've got such issues with the postcode lottery that if your decision of a choice of clinic, it also not just relies on success rates, but also includes the storage element, I think allowing permission for patients to think about that stuff by informing them on how it could be. It's an enormous part of this process, and certainly for patients that are freezing you know, their eggs, right? Because this is, I'm not just freezing my eggs, I'm now paying for the storage of those yeah. eggs until I'm ready to use them, if ever. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's important for patients to, to understand how it works. And there's not one single clinic in this world that is doing cryo storage wrong at this point. They're using the tools they have available. There has never been a tool available to improve that standard of care. And now there is. So next we're going to hear from Elizabeth Carr. Kate will give her thoughts on that chat with Cynthia in the next conversation. And do make sure you're listening to the end. We'll give you all the details of how you can get in touch and let us know what you think about this episode. So we're really looking forward now to welcoming Elizabeth Carr, the US's first IVF baby. And if you have gone through the archives of the Fertility Podcast, a good couple of years ago, I actually spoke to Louise Brown. I had a giggle with her about how much she loved Take That, which was some common ground that we both had when we were we were teenagers. But Elizabeth, welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And Elizabeth is coming through uh, about of COVID. COVID. So um, we're going to be very gentle with you. And if you need to go and cough, please do. But first of all, tell us what, what that was like with the spotlight on you, because I know from Louise telling us she had all like newspaper cuttings from her parents and there was a lot of negativity as well as positivity. And, um, and I bet that was heightened in, in the States, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So what's so interesting is that when I first met Louise, uh, we were comparing notes really about uh, our crazy lives and our lives were eerily similar, even though we grew up uh, half a world apart. Um, so, you know, similarly, I, I have no idea what my first word was as a baby, but I can tell you the first headline. Um, you know, my first press conference <laughs> was at three days old. Um, I have a photo of me at three cells old. Uh, so, you know, um, especially in the States, my parents went through IVF, they actually had to leave the state they were living in um, and travel to a different state to, they didn't move there. They just traveled there for IVF because IVF was actually illegal in the state where my parents were wow. living. So 
Uh, it was highly controversial, obviously. Um, and that really shaped my childhood. I was very, very aware that if I didn't come out, uh, quote unquote, normal looking or sound right, or, you know, I had the wrong number of fingers or toes, that there were going to be real consequences for the reproductive field. Um, and so when you grow up knowing that, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, truly, um, and so, you know, I kind of always grew up uh, telling our story because my parents felt very strongly that people should know that this is an option and that this is, you know, a potential way you can have a family of your own. And if it just helped one person listening to our story, then all of the lack of privacy that I went through was really worth it. And that's kind of how I grew up. So you, you mentioned there at the beginning about, you know, not knowing your first word, but you knew the headline, the first headlines yes. and, and all the media attention. And you then later went into journalism. Yes. Is, tell us about that. Was it because, did you get interest, interested in journalism because of the, I guess, the attention that was on you? Is that how it came about? Yeah, actually, I got really frustrated, <laughs> right? So I got really, really frustrated with being asked the same question over and over and over again. Um, and I felt like there were a, uh, a lot. I mean, there were some really excellent journalists that I met and, and wrote about me. But there were a, a lion's share that I felt like didn't um, truly understand or, at, or do their homework. And so from a very young age, I kind of made up my mind that like, well, I can do this. I can do this job better than they can. <laughs> you know, kind of like a, t a cocky 10-year-old girl. Like, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and not surprising to anyone, I think. Uh, you know, I primarily stuck with the health and wellness field because it was something I grew up paying such close attention to, not just about infertility, but just health in general. Um, and so that's my running joke at tomorrow is that I always say I'm, I'm science adjacent. I'm not a scientist. I do not have the letters after my name, but I know just enough to be dangerous. And I really, you know, kind of had that vein all through my childhood of wanting to explain things that were very complicated to people in a way that they could truly understand. Well, before we talk more about your work at tomorrow, I'm really curious to how you did that as a child, just in the story that you were telling that your parents had told you. So I have a say year old and we've talked to him about how he was made with science um and he's at a point have you got siblings or are you an only no, child no it's just me okay so we're we're at that point and, and forgive me for being slightly self-indulgent but I, I feel quite privileged to be able to ask you what that conversation has panned out as a because I'm assuming I mean he's seven and he's pretty keen to talk about how he says his brain is supercharged because he was made with science so I'm assuming probably you sound like you're a pretty smart kid and around you know seven upwards maybe talking quite eloquently about it how was it talking about that story as a young kid where there was less understanding like there is you know for my seven-year-old son now and and how did it make you feel knowing that that meant that there wasn't going to be siblings because of this kind of amazing science that you're a part of you know I'm a terrible person to ask this question because I actually asked my parents very very young you know the typical where do babies come from and their answer was always mommy and daddy couldn't have you without the help of some very important doctors and scientists. And then about when I was six or seven, um, I actually sat down and watched a Nova documentary of my own birth with my two doctors, uh, Dr. Howard Jones on one side and Dr. Georgiana on the other. 
and we screened the whole thing. And so they explained in great detail um, how I got here. But it was it was really that moment that I say, you know, selfishly, everybody should have a Dr. Georgiana Jones in their life because that's when I learned the one singular sentence that I've used throughout my life to explain IVF, which is a sperm and an egg are fertilized in a Petri dish. And once it's fertilized, it goes back into the mother's womb. And nine months later, here you are just like everybody else. That's literally the same sentence that I learned when I was seven. But as for siblings, you know, I never wanted siblings. I don't know. I think I, I, I was very content with just my parents and my dog. So I didn't really ask about, you know, could we have siblings or, and I think I also just, understood that it was so hard for them to just have me that it seemed out of the question even to to go back you know that's the sentence I learned way back I think I'll leave him with his I've got a supercharged mind because I was made with science ours was slightly more involved because it was ICSI not IVF so I, I, I I'm not quite ready to go and then we had to <laughs> do this with the sperm and do that with the so we'll work on that science lesson but let's fast forward to where that's led you into the world of ART and working working with Tomorrow who are this fascinating company that Kate hasn't had the the opportunity to to witness the robotics of the cryo storage that tomorrow have um, created but I'm hoping that I did a good enough job Kate of painting <laughs> a picture did. with the recording there was the liquid nitrogen there was the eye recognition voice happening and Cynthia gave the most amazing explanation of it and Kate just before we talk more with um, Elizabeth about what she feels about it as a as an advancement in technology as somebody who's been in labs and knowing how labs work Kate what did you get from it were you transported into the future totally and it's partly the sounds you know the liquid nitrogen sound was amazing and I, I felt like it was a bit sci-fi and I really wanted it was great listening but I feel like I was frustrated because I wanted to see it I really felt that but I, I just think it was absolutely fascinating and I think for Anyone listening that is about to go through a IVF cycle and thinking about freezing their embryos, I think this gives a real insight into what happens in the lab and also what happens to your precious embryos. So Elizabeth, just talk to me a bit about your involvement in tomorrow, because one of the things that we're keen to get across to the patient at this point is that it's not that what they're currently maybe having available to them in their clinic isn't good, because we know that that the advances in, in storage are amazing, but we're just trying to convey this this issue of, of what's happening in the future. And, and also just understand from you, is there more concern from clinics of patients going AWOL? So I'm somebody who we had frozen embryos we made the decision to not have further treatment and donate them to science and it's something that whenever I've talked about it on my socials people are always like they're afraid they're in limbo of 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 letting go of their embryos but then I also know that there are and there are issues of people when they separate or people move and then the clinics can't find them and, and we're talking about this in a later episode so you, you don't need to cover that but I'm just really keen to know what you're getting from the conversations you're having with clinics about this new opportunity for for cryo storage. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing, and as somebody who's been in a lot of clinics throughout my life, right, I've 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 had the privilege of seeing behind the curtain, as it were, and the thing that you come to learn very quickly is just how complex this seemingly, I, you know, the the sentence I described earlier sounds simple, right? But it's actually very complex in order to do IVF or ICSI or, or any of these things. And what has happened is that there's so much volume 
of specimens, eggs, embryos, sperm, all these things in the lab to such a degree that there never was this this huge volume before, that now these embryologists who work incredibly hard and incredibly long hours have to do all of these extra things, all this paperwork that's uh, surrounding um, just the management of the specimens and, and things that are really taking them away from what they're really truly good at at their core, which is the embryology, right? So... Uh, on the one hand, they become this kind of accidental storage biorepository for all of these specimens, um, which is a wonderful problem to have on one hand, because it means people have accessibility to this in a way they never did before. So from the patient, as somebody who's been a patient advocate her whole life, I feel like, yay, hurrah, that's wonderful. But on the flip side, it really puts a strain on the lab and the embryologists and the clinics. And so what this technology does um, is really free up some of those manual steps and replace it with robotics and automation and real transparency because of the tracking and tracing available through the RFID technology and things like that. So it just eases that burden on the embryology side and it provides a level of access and transparency that patients haven't had before that now they do. I think this is one of the things at the end of the chat with Cynthia, she said how um, the kind of the organization had come to be because the owners had been chatting with a woman who just had no idea where her embryo was. And and it was something that I just assumed that mine was in the clinic. And I think for a lot of people listening, we're not in any way wanting to scare you by saying it's not where you think it is. But the harsh reality is, is that as time goes on and the popularity of IVF and accessibility to IVF continues, the, the storage facilities could well be off site and therefore Correct. do you know where your embryos are and is that something that you hear from the clinics that the patients are wanting to know more and more about where their embryos are being stored and this is the biggest thing that I've seen over my course of 40 years in in this industry right is that patients now I mean my parents had no idea literally what they were getting into at all they didn't even know what IVF was because no one had ever done it in the States before. So patients now are so much more well-educated and are asking these really nitty gritty questions that, um, you know, it's, it's amazing and wonderful that they're asking these questions, but the industry needs to be able to have answers to satisfy those questions. Right. And so that's the biggest challenge is these clinics need to be able to, to give really in-depth answers in a way that they haven't had to do before. Good point. Absolutely. I think that's what we're seeing more and more. And certainly that's what I'm seeing with my patients, that they're, they're wanting to ask more. They are much more well-informed and absolutely so they should be. Is there anything that you think, Elizabeth, about what the future looks like for cryo storage that, that, that the patient should know in terms of like, it's obviously coming over to the UK slower than the US and um, and we're seeing the patient experience being talked a lot more. Do you think it's going to be like a deciding factor of where patients are choosing to go when they're looking at success rates? And they're looking, we, we, we're doing a, another episode about the kind of future of IVF. And um, we're going to be talking about some of the things available for patients in their whole experience. And do you think that this element in the journey is going to be taken into consideration more from patients? I absolutely think that. I always tell the story that um, I I actually wasn't looking to work at Tomorrow. I had had, had attended um, one of the demos and, and just seen the technology. And after I saw the technology, that's when I said, you know, I really want to work with you all because I know 
how imperative this level of information is on the patient side of things. And these are the questions that people have been asking me. And so I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to see patients really wanting more and more information. I mean, in one way, it's information overload, right? With all of the options that you have with your your care and just all the different protocols that are potentially available to you and all these kinds of things. But on the flip side, I think by and large, patients would rather have more choice than less. And so if you're given an opportunity at more information and more transparency, I don't think anyone would choose less. Agreed. It's been lovely chatting with you, Elizabeth. Thank you. So lovely to meet you, Elizabeth. Yeah, lovely Brilliant. to meet you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So how was that for you, meeting the world's second IVF oh, yeah. baby? Cool. Wasn't she lovely? She's really lovely. And how cool is that, having met Louise and now met Elizabeth? That's pretty cool, isn't it? And I think it's amazing that Elizabeth, as she explained, has ended up working in this this crazy world that brought her into the world. Um, yeah. But then Louise has in many ways that she she's very active in in the industry, and I guess there's probably no way of getting away from it if you're yeah. as famous as Louise and Elizabeth are always going to be. Yeah, people are going to want to talk to you. And I know she was saying as I had to nip out to uh, tell my other half, who's still now talking loudly on the phone, to um hush hush now. She was saying that they're in touch on WhatsApp and FaceTime, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, and they Instagram, they message, and they, they've met once in person, she said. But yeah, they keep in touch because, as she said, their lives are so similar. So why not? Yeah. So we've been asking you through this series of Behind the Scenes a question just to gauge what you think. And I suppose with this, it is really, are, are you interested in where your embryos are stored and how they are stored in your decision-making process? Because you heard about this new technology and Elizabeth there saying that she does think it's a part of the decision-making process. What do you think, Kate? Do you think people are going to be I mean ultimately we're trying to empower you and help you with this decision making um if it's a price factor which it could well be is that gonna then become more of an issue or are we hoping that all the clinics that have this like modern technology are able for the cost to be you know regulated I don't know because I do think it might bump up costs do you yeah quite possibly I think it's going to be watching the space really isn't it to see what happens but I guess where you have new technology and new innovation it is going to come at a price I think that's it isn't it ultimately technology does cost and these advancements and the investment that the clinics are making in them they have to be passed on somewhere and I think if you know that then ultimately you're getting this amazing advancement are you going to mind I think it would definitely be something for me, looking at it, that I'd be quite fascinated to understand. And I think each time you're going and having these conversations at the clinic, you know, you're perfectly entitled to ask about these these developments in 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 the technology, aren't you? You are, and I think we have to think that technology moves on. We can't stay as we've always been. Um, like I said earlier, the fact that cryo storage has been the same for the last forty plus years is yeah. in- incredible, really. So things have to move on. We have to move with the times. And yes, that could mean a price increase, but that is what you're going to get when we've got new technology and new advancement. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think. You can email us as always on info at thefertilitypodcast.com or you can drop me a note on my socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Nurse. And as we keep saying, do rate and review the episode to let us know what you think because we love hearing from you. Until the next time. So thanks again to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, who can track and monitor the vitrified eggs and embryos stored within its system through its unique and proprietary RFID technology. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, reducing the possibility of human mistakes. So to learn more or to talk to your healthcare provider about storing 
exploring your embryos or eggs with tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W dot org.